Listen, guys, I had a super chill week. It was just really great to like relax into 2021. I know. Uh, We're we're off to a a great start here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Aside from potential violent overthrow of the United States government, everything's going awesome. Yeah. It's been a nutty week. Um, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, Like it's beyond. It's, uh, I'm a bit beyond words with everything that Mm -hmm. has happened this week and what I see continuing to happen. And yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny for a little uh, behind the scenes for our listeners. If you listen to last week's episode where at the beginning we were talking about like anxiety and how anxious we were. And I actually cut out the part where we were talking about what we were anxious about was the Georgia election because yep. by the time the episode aired and I was editing, I was editing it Wednesday night and I was mm-hmm. like, you know, no, let, let's not talk about the Georgia election. <laughs> yeah. But fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, the anxiety ended up becoming about something very different. Yeah. Which, okay. Before we get into this, cause it's going to lead us pretty, pretty slipperly, I think into our actual stories for today. Mm-hmm. Uh, hi everybody. This is the weirdest thing podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Amelia Ampuero. And I am your other co-host, Scotty Milder. And uh, yeah, so last week, um, my story was uh, a lot darker than I think I actually intended it to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we decided we're going to lighten things up a lot this week by talking about two other potential overthrows of the United States. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we... Okay, so look, here's the deal. We obviously recorded last week's episode before any of the events that took place on January 6th took place. The episode was released literally the very next day. And in talking about what Scotty and I wanted to do for the next episode, we thought that it might be a good idea to explore coups that have happened in the United States. Especially since a lot of people seem to think that one, they cannot happen or and or have not happened. And that's not the case. Yeah. So here we go. So uh, here we go. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. We're just launching right into it. Yeah. I guess Hi. So. Hi. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Cool. So I am going to talk to you about the Wilmington massacre slash insurrection slash coup Mm. and uh information from this came from wikipedia my god the article on this particular incident is endless (laughs) (laughs) i'm I'm not even kidding i have been reading it all week i've never heard of this so i'm excited Okay, get ready. Um, Part of it is because the Wikipedia article is kind of like, slavery is an institution that has been around and like starts at the beginning. (laughs) Of time. Of time. (laughs) Additionally, this story takes place after the Civil War, after Reconstruction. And so, of course, the article has to be like, this is the Civil War. This is Reconstruction and really goes in Mm -hmm. uh, a lot. So just know if you decide to go look at the Wikipedia article on this, Get ready for the long haul. 
information also comes from an article on time.com that is titled the 1898 Wilmington Massacre is an essential lesson in how state violence has targeted black Americans. Mm. An article from NPR titled how the only coup d'etat in U.S. history unfolded. Two articles from the Atlantic. I am beginning to love the Atlantic. Oh, it's great. I mean, just, and like long enough articles that you feel like you're really getting some insight into whatever they're about, but also not Wikipedia Wilmington massacre length articles. So two articles from the Atlantic called The History of an American Coup d'Etat by Adrian LaFrance and Van R. Newkirk II and Black Pathology Crowdsourced by Tanaisi Coates. Mm-hmm. I think I said that right. Also, Ta-Nahisi a lot of Tanaisi Coates. Yes, yes, that person, that 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 gentleman. And some information is coming from Britannica.com, which is also a good little resource. Yeah. In the uh, writing of this, in the research of this story, I also fell into these rabbit holes, and that's yeah. U.S. involvement in coups in in coup d'etats and the lost cause of the confederacy the first of course dealing with all of the coups all over the world that the u.s has had an active hand in uh of which they are many yeah and uh, we could do we could do like a two-hour episode of literally just listing them like not even describing them but just like just yes yeah yes just to give you uh listeners in case you don't know uh just to little glance at that of the 33 countries that make up latin america and that includes the caribbean 16 have had u.s involved coups Mm. happen and that is not like in in modern history right uh lost cause of the confederacy is also fascinating um Lost Cause of the Confederacy is basically where the idea of like the the War of Northern Aggression comes from. And it's a sort of revisionist rewriting of the Confederacy during and around the time of Civil War and afterwards. Okay, so let's dive in. Let's get specific. A coup d'etat is defined as the removal of an existing government from power, usually through violent means. Typically, it's an illegal, unconstitutional seizure of power by a political faction, the military, or a dictator. The events that led to the attack on the Capitol here in the U.S. on January 6, 2021 does not technically fall into the definition of a coup d'etat, but rather much more aligns with an auto coup or a self coup. And that Mm. is a coup in which a nation's leader, despite having come to power through legal means, dissolves or renders powerless the national legislature and unlawfully assumes extraordinary powers not granted under normal circumstances. Right. And I think it's also important to point out because I've been seeing this on Twitter people popping up you know mm-hmm. with all the discussion about the 25th amendment and whatnot mm-hmm. i've seen a couple comments of like oh so now the democrats think it's okay to do a coup and it's like that's not a coup that is part of the constitution <laughs> it's legal it's yes put in place for this very reason yes you can um, agree with it or not but it is not a coup d'etat <laughs> to no. the 25th amendment it's a literal amendment of the no and the 25th amendment was also put in place in case somebody lost their mind and, you know, decided to do things like spout rumors that an election that had been, that free elections had not actually been free elections, that there was some type of, you know, shit going on. Um, And and calling his supporters (laughs) to march and invade the Capitol and potentially violently attack 
his own vice president. Like yes, that might fall under that category. Just you know, yes, might fall might fall into that category. Um, I don't make that that delineation that I just made between a self coup slash auto coup and a coup d'état to lessen or diminish the impact of the events of January 6th, but rather to inform people because as consciously likes to say all the time on Instagram, education is elevation. Mm -hmm. So, and like I said earlier, there's been a lot of talk about there never having been a coup in the U.S. or that Wilmington was the only coup. That is patently false. There have been a lot of coups that happened Mm -hmm. in this country. Most of them were during Reconstruction. The difference is, is that they happened at the state and local level. Yep. That makes them no less dangerous because things that something that people need to realize is that the overthrow of a, like a federal government is the last step of a coup. It is not the first step. Right. The last one. So important things, important important things to know, and important delineations to make. Also, this story, I'm going to be talking a lot about two well-known political parties in the country, and that <laughs> is the Democrats and the Republicans. However, you have to know that during the time of our story, the parties then look very differently than they do now. Right. Uh, somewhere along the way, okay, let me go back a bit. There are a <laughs> lot of folks out there who like to say that Lincoln was a Republican, and it was the Democratic Party that was the party of slavery. This 100% is true. Lincoln was a Republican. The Democratic Party was the party of slavery. Mm -hmm. Um, That's where we go and we get Dixiecrats and all that stuff. But this evolution that takes place that sort of takes us from Civil War, post-Civil War, Democrat, Republican, to current day Democrat, Republican is something that takes Oh, about a hundred years. It is a long, slow metamorphosis. Mm-hmm. Um, that shift in party, I can't talk today. That shift in party ideology began after the Civil War. And like I said, really kept going until the 1960s. There is a lot of stuff that is involved with it. That's the Gilded Age in the US, the development of industry, slavery, reconstruction, civil rights, white supremacy, states' rights, Big government versus small government, the West, the Mm -hmm. Great Depression, the New Deal, a lot. So for the purposes of this story, when I say democratic, what I'm talking about are conservative people who believed in small government, and unfortunately, hella racist, um, Mm -hmm. while Republican equals liberal, progressive, big government. Okay. So... A bit of backstory before we get to the story. When the Civil War started, emancipation was not actually one of Abe Lincoln's goals. Lincoln had a complicated ideology regarding slavery that evolved over time, but it wasn't quite as simple as like Abe being really against slavery because it's like a shitty thing to do uh, right from the beginning. Yeah. Okay, so that's going on. There are the border slave states, and that's Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, Missouri, and after 1863, the new state of West Virginia. So these are states that are basically sort of like the northern south. And they're states, yeah. they're states that had slavery, but they didn't secede from the Union. Right. So Lincoln was really worried that going full tilt abolition would push the border slave states into the Confederacy and anger conservative Northerners. I'm trying to figure out if I'm about to sneeze. (laughs) (laughs) 
The moments passed. Okay. Okay. Um, So as the Union marched through the South in 1862, though, enslaved people were like, hey, this is actually like a really big deal to us. And they, they went and joined the Union lines. This happens to be a big blow to the South's weird ass mythology that enslaved people were really quite content to be enslaved. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like the happy slave myth. Yes, 100%. And I guess it was at that point that Lincoln was really like, oh, okay, we might need to take a look at this. Additionally, there are a lot of people who, who, I mean, historians, scholars, all that stuff, who want to debate the reasons for the Civil War. And there are a lot of them that are like, it actually wasn't about slavery. It was about states' rights and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, all of that stuff boiled down to it, it it really boiled down to slavery. Like there's not a there's I not mean, a real way to get around it. They wanted states' rights to continue to, to be to own slave. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah like pretty straightforward. <laughs> so anyway, Lincoln knew that some kind of reconstruction was going to have to happen after the Civil War in order to like bring the South back into the flock. But he like really had no idea about how to go about that. In a speech that he gave on April 11th, 1865, Lincoln said that some black people, including newly freed, formerly enslaved black folks, and I mean, honestly, this is men, and any black man who had fought for the union would have the right to vote. He was assassinated three days later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this meant that reconstruction fell to Lincoln's VP, who was Andrew Johnson, who was like, all in on unionism, but also believed in states' rights. He was a big Southern sympathizer. I mean, I think until the current president, the general agreement is that Andrew Johnson is the worst U.S. president. <laughs> so, like, in everything I've read from history. Ay, ay, ay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So I'm going to take a bit here to talk about, if you've ever heard of the phrase 40 acres and a mule, mm-hmm. Forty. the 40 acres part was part of William T. Sherman's special field order number 15 that was done on January 16th, 1865. And that field order gave formerly enslaved black folks the right to own 40 acres along the South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida coasts in an effort to give black people a chance to be, quote, self-sufficient economically to build, accrue, and pass on wealth. It was seen as a necessary step and part of the healing that was going to have to happen after the end of civil war and after and the end of slavery. Mm-hmm. It was also seen as a way to break Southern slaveholders power. So had that been allowed to happen, had they been given the 40 acres, had they been allowed to do all that stuff, the country would look very, very different than it does today. Right. Andrew Johnson was like, yeah, nah, and overturned the field order in the fall of 1865. And he returned all of that land to the very people who had declared war on the U.S. With the exception of upholding the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, swearing loyalty to the Union, and paying off their war debt, Johnson basically let the South rebuild itself how it saw fit. This led to nearly all of the Southern states enacting their own versions of Black Codes, which is a way of restricting freed Black people's activity and making sure that they'd basically only be able to be a labor source. So it said Mm. that like they couldn't hold certain jobs and all that stuff sounds like kind of the start of jim crow absolutely it is 100 the beginning of jim crow so this didn't sit well with folks in the north and northern congressmen actually ended up refusing to seat congressmen and senators that had been elected from the south 
1866, Congress passed the Freedmen's Bureau and Civil Rights Bill, and they sent them along to Johnson for his signature. This was a bill that extended the life of the Freedmen's Bureau, which assisted refugees and formerly enslaved people, and defined all people born in the U.S. as natural citizens who could enjoy equality before the law. Johnson vetoes the bill. Mm-hmm. Congress is like, suck it, Johnson. They override the veto. <laughs> and that actually is part of the reason why Congress ended up impeaching Johnson. Right. Yeah. Okay, so what follows next was the Reconstruction Act of 1867. So there was a presidential reconstruction, which is kind of what Johnson was trying to do, where he was like, yeah, like, it's, you know, just kind of like, do whatever you want, but like, you know, don't like do slavery. And then there was this period known as radical reconstruction. And that basically worked to ensure that former slaveholders holders wouldn't like go back to their bullshit, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, Because from what I know about Johnson is he was like, basically trying to do the absolute minimum, like, okay, the war is over and then just give as much amnesty and like concessions to the South, to the Southern slave holders, former slave holders as possible. Right. Yeah, very much so. So this led to radical Republicans of the North, like, and making their way down to the South. This is actually where the term carpetbagger comes from. Mm-hmm. So they, they go down there, they set up shop, and they start to outline basically how like universal male suffrage is going to go down. They ensured the reason carpetbaggers were looked upon, and I mean, carpetbagger in and of itself is sort of a derogatory term. The reason they were looked at with such disdain by people in the South is because they essentially went down there to like babysit the Southerners to make sure that they did what they needed to do. And that included creating a plan for male suffrage for freed, formerly enslaved people, ensuring the ratification of the 14th Amendment, which that's citizenship rights and equal protection under law, and the 15th Amendment, which guarantees a citizen's right to vote, would not be denied on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. And they had to do all of that before they could rejoin the Union. So I'm sure that these these radical Republicans not super welcome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the, all of this is basically like a huge experiment in interracial democracy. And the fact that the Northerners demanded that the South allow Black people to be active, productive members of society that's own their own businesses and land, hold positions of power, become elected officials, really pissed white supremacists off. It yeah. pissed them off so bad, in fact, that they started the Ku Klux Klan just to show how mad they were. Yeah. So let's fucking talk about the Klan, I guess. Okay, so the Klan, along with other white supremacist groups, they start targeting local Republican leaders, uh, both white and black, and any other black folks who, quote unquote, challenge white authority. By this point, Ulysses S. Grant is president, and he's like, we literally just fucking fought a civil war over this. Like, fuck y'all, and he passes the Enforcement Acts. Right. So the Enforcement Acts are criminal codes that protected Black Americans' right to vote, hold office, serve on juries, they provided equal protection, all of this stuff. They also allowed the federal government to intervene when the states didn't uphold and protect these rights, and the enforcement rights were specifically aimed at the Klan and made state officials, many of whom 
were Klan members, liable in court for depriving anyone of their civil rights. It also made a lot of the Klan's tactics uh, federal offensive, so they could get in big, big trouble. And it allowed the president to send out the militia to, to suppress conspiracies against the operation of the federal government. And it prohibited those suspected of complicity in such conspiracies to serve on juries related to Klan activities. As I was gathering all this information, I was like, do we not still have the enforcement acts yeah like can we that would be useful maybe right now especially in terms of suppressing conspiracies against the operation of the federal government yeah i mean are they still around can we like dust them off maybe like change some dates (laughs) you know like Do we need to? Was there like an expiration date on this shit? Put in a little something about Facebook in there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. So when Klansmen were put on trial in South Carolina, they stood in front of juries that were mainly black. Mm -hmm. This had to have just melted their butter. They must have just been so pissed off about this. Lawyer Amos T. Ackerman, Ackerman, don't know. He was, uh, he worked real hard during this time to prosecute as many clan people as he possibly could. And he also worked really hard to make America aware of how big of a problem the clan was. Something that's also interesting, I feel like they're in looking at, you know, in researching the story and also looking at the parallels of uh, last week's events, it's interesting to see how much people want to be like, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. And it's like, it's not that big of a deal until it is a big, that big right. of a deal. And at that point, it's too late. So, right. you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of an ounce of prevention. Right? Yeah. So the Enforcement Acts basically squashed the clan for a bit. They'll be back later. Not really in this story, but in history. Right. I mean, I, that's like from what I've read of the clan, like I think we've mentioned this on the show. Like when we talk about the clan that we think of, you know, the Mississippi burning, you know, white hoods and stuff, that's actually the second version of the clan that kind of came about around the time of the movie Birth of a Nation. No, that, so the original clan had that. The second one came out in the 20s and the the lynching of leo frank actually had a big part oh, in the resurrection yeah, yeah in the that, resurrection that's a of whole the clan. story we should cover at some point yeah. yeah and then you know and so on and so it's just a fucking cockroach okay so that's the world that we're like sort of dealing with right. by the time we get to wilmington in north wilmington north carolina in the late 1890s post-reconstruction north carolina wasn't doing too great mm. uh democratic redeemer governments rolled had rolled back a lot of civil rights for black americans but or rather and i guess i don't know an economic recession comes along and it hits local farmers really hard and they're not too happy with democrats or republicans Mm. so for the 1892 election they took to the populist or people's party to help them out and even though the populist party didn't win a lot of offices the combined populist republican vote was bigger than the democratic vote so it basically took power away from the democrats yeah (laughs) i was was about to talk shit (laughs) (laughs) i mean I think you're allowed to talk shit about these people. I just talk a lot of shit later on. And like, I was thinking to myself as I was researching this, that I was like, there is no part of me that is like impartial. And there is no, like here, 
if if yeah. unfortunately in stuff like this if you were looking for like an unbiased just purely like academic thing there are a lot of other great podcasts that you can listen to i unfortunately cannot give you no we're the, that that take on we're the this. we're the eat a dick racists <laughs> Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So there we go. So these poor white farmers probably, no, I know that these poor white farmers like really didn't give a shit about civil rights for black people, but they knew that their interests would be far, would, would, would fare far better by teaming up with the Republicans. So this mm-hmm. leads to the formation of the fusionist coalition. And together, Republicans and populists take control of the state legislature. They elect a populist and a Republican to the U.S. Senate in the 1894 election. So they're just moving along. The fusionists maintain control of the legislature in 1896. They elect a Republican governor and they enact reforms that benefit black people and working class white folks. What's cool about this from what I'm gathering from what you're saying is that like these weren't Republicans that were like imposed by the radical reconstruction sort of like sent down like you said carpetbaggers it's like this is like a homegrown like populist movement to elect Republicans yeah it seems like that that's that's what's going on here or at least like create a coalition yeah yeah Yeah. and i think at that time what they were seeing is that they were like hey it's sort of the rising tide lifts all boats right like there's no way for any one of us to be doing that well if any one of us is suffering greatly right a sentiment that i wish today's society would grasp onto a bit more okay so wilmington north carolina is it's it's a port city in coastal southeastern north carolina it's way too many directions. Okay. <laughs> so in the 1890s, it's also North Carolina's most populated city and it's predominantly black. There were other cities um, in like Kentucky and maybe I think Mississippi that also had sizable black populations, but Wilmington, their population was, I think, 55% black, whereas the city in Kentucky was like 17% black. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a big it's a black big, population. Yeah, it's a big, big, big part of the population. So it's got this banging black middle class, right? Black folks in Wilmington are like, they're professionals, they're using skills that they used while enslaved to start their own businesses. They work as artisans, industrial workers, laborers they worked on maritime crews it's fucking awesome they're building up black schools they're using inherited wealth and status to create this like cohesive social and cultural environment they even have a black owned newspaper and that's called the wilmington record and it is run by a man named alexander manley so fuck yes Everything's going awesome in Wilmington at this time. Oh, they also have the most integrated local government around. Three of the 10 city aldermen and 10 out of the 26 policemen were black, and they had black magistrates. Mm -hmm. They're rocking and rolling. Of course, this drives the white supremacists in the area, like, absolutely batty. They're... Like, this feels like Tulsa before the Tulsa race massacre. Yeah. Um, Is this going to end well, I guess is the question. The... Yeah. So these white supremacists are humiliated. Like that's a word that I saw a lot by 
like racial equality, I guess. So instead of going to therapy, a group of nine (laughs) men who become known as the secret nine, these assholes include Hugh McRae, J. Allen Taylor, Hardy L. Fennell, W. A. Johnson, L. B. Sasser, William Gilchrist, P. B. Manning, and E. S. Lathrop, hi Bowie, and Walter L. Parsley, these assholes decide to do something about their feelings of inadequacy, and what they decide to do is throw a coup. They mm-hmm. decide to overturn the will of the people and violently install a new white supremacist state government. There's a financial element to this as well. There was a lot of stuff about how, you know, like white people had to pay more taxes and stuff. But the thing is, is that they had more money, they had right. more wealth. Like, uh, <sighs> It was the whole thing with like progressive taxation versus flat tax versus blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. Basically, I don't know, like, it's <laughs> like there's a couple philosophies to taxing people, which is like, well, if you're rich and you've made all this money, that means you work harder. Therefore, you should keep more money. And if you're poor, you should pay in more. Right. Because the, let's punish you for being poor. Right. Or but the fallacy like, of that is you're rich because you built industries on the backs of slave labor and never had to pay anybody. So you got to hoard your pennies. Right. Like, they don't like to talk about that part. No, they don't like to fucking talk about it, but we're going to talk about it here. So there's this yeah. whole financial element again. All of it still basically boils down to the fact that they were like, we don't, we don't like this, this leveling of the field. Right. It's, so I don't know. Oh yeah. Okay. So along the way, the secret nine pick up a dude named Fernifold Simmons. Um, and he, Sorry. no, it's, I have the, to laugh at the name Fernifold. Like that's out of game of Thrones or something like Fernifold Simmons. I'll just wait yeah. till you hear a couple of these other ones. Fernifold actually is the chair of the North Carolina democratic party. And he decides that the white supremacist campaign needs men who could write, speak, or ride. I'm going to come back to that in a bit. We're just going to stick a little Mm. pin in that. Simmons also picks up Josephus Daniels. Jesus. And he is the publisher of the Raleigh News and Observer. That's North Carolina's most influential paper. Um, and they do that when they're like, uh, we're going to need, like, we're going to need the media on Mm. our side. Josephus and Fernifold, good grief (laughs) (laughs) so josephus and fernifold go about a blatant racist white supremacist campaign to forever stop by bullet or ballot voting and office holding by black people that's like that's in a quote by bullet or ballot yeah i've heard i've heard that before i wonder if that's that must be where it comes from yeah, Josephus and Fernivold, I say that they go about it because the Secret Nine were doing just that. They were being secret. They were pulling the strings behind right. the scenes. This is also, like when I say again, they go about this, this is not a this is not covert. They openly label the project the white supremacy campaign. Mm. Their plan was to steal 1898 federal and state election by intimidating black and white liberal voters through terrorism and playing on the racist views held by white populists. So those farmers that we were talking about earlier, those guys. Remember I said they didn't really care about civil rights. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so Josephus starts using his newspaper, which got a lot of help and a lot of traction. Basically, sorry. Basically... (laughs) 
the Charlotte Observer and the William, the Wilmington Messenger and the Wilmington Morning Star are basically like retweeting essentially all of the shit <laughs> that the Raleigh News and Observer is putting out there. Okay. And they start to carry out this like disgust. I mean, it is disgusting campaign of racist propaganda. At this time, 20% of white North Carolinians were illiterate. So this campaign had to rely heavily on uh, pretty disgusting political cartoons. Yeah. Um, these cartoons showed the Republican government as wildly corrupt, grossly incompetent. Sorry, this is a quote. Wildly corrupt, grossly incompetent, and controlled by grotesque, dim-witted Black people. Mm. Another big message was this false threat that Southern white women faced at the hands of Black men who were always depicted to be these, like, sex-starved, sex-starved, like, beasts. Right. Again, with this thing about fucking white women uh, and black yeah. dudes. And, and again, that plays into the Tulsa race mask. Yeah, I mean, it's playing into all of it. It's, it's, it's yeah. a tune that they do not... Mm, right. I don't know if they've stopped singing it. I mean, well, I'm going to be mean, completely honest. It's like they talk about, oh, when Trump goes to his rallies, he just sort of plays his greatest hits. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is like the greatest hits of white supremacy. Very much. Yeah. So Josephus and Fernifold start putting out that message and, uh, you know, instead of like doing something real with their lives and they're eventually joined by, <laughs> I almost just cussed out this chick real bad. Uh, they're eventually joined by Rebecca Ann Felton, who gives at least one speech saying basically that, that lynching was the only way to eliminate the threat black men pose to white women. Mm. I should have 100% given a content warning at the beginning of this. I don't ever go into, I'm, I'm not going to get into anything super, but uh, super graphic or anything. Everything's going to be pretty much along like what I just said, but should have 100% have done that. Okay. Anyways, yeah. Alexander Manley, who was the dude who ran the Wilmington record, which was Wilmington's black owned newspaper. Right. He calls out Rebecca in an editorial and he goes on to point out the long history of white men perpetrating sexual violence against black women. And he goes on then to point out that white women are attracted to and fall in love with black men who they associate with of their own volition. Oh, like, this would have gone off like a freaking hand grenade. Oh, okay. Yes. The response to this editorial is described as volcanic yeah yeah so white folk call for manly to be lynched on the spot but the leaders of the white supremacist campaign are like um not right now not because lynching is a fucking terrible thing to do but because they know that it's going to hurt their cause politically wait let's bite our time kind of 100 like that is literally they were like not now but definitely at some point he's going to get what's coming to him so the white supremacy campaign has its writers working the media, its speakers spreading the message, and they need one last element to like really bring home their evil plot. And that's the muscle or the riders that I mentioned above. So that's right. riders meant folks who could ride a horse and be intimidating. Mm-hmm. That brings us to the red shirts, these assholes. Okay. The red shirts were a paramilitary terrorist group. And they were so named because they adopted the wearing of red shirts to make themselves visibly terrorizing to white Southern progressives. Um, If you've ever heard the term scallywag, Mm -hmm. a white Southern progressive is a scallywag. Interesting. Okay. Yep. 
Yeah. So white Northern progressives, carpetbaggers, white Southern progressives, scalawags. Mm-hmm. And of course, freed uh, freedmen. Unlike the Klan, they were out in the open. They didn't hide. There were no hoods. Mm-hmm. None of that stuff. And unfortunately, they were better organized. Mm. Their explicit purpose was to restore power to the Democratic Party. Okay. So why the red shirts? And they did. I mean, like, uh, there was a picture of one, I think, from a museum in North Carolina. And I mean, it's a red shirt. It yeah. is a red shirt. Okay. So Red shirts. In 1871, Representative Benjamin Butler of Massachusetts made a speech condemning the thuggery of the Klan. It was alleged that Butler had like emotionally held up for like emotional impact, held up a shirt stained with the blood of a Reconstruction era carpetbagger who'd been whipped by the Klan. Mm. Butler didn't actually wave a bloody shirt around but white supremacists like glommed onto that story and would show up in the red shirts as basically a middle finger to those who were like hey the clan is awful so So it's like it's like it's like the beginning of the fuck your feelings crap it's it's the beginning of the owning the libs i guess yeah exactly (laughs) way to own the libs in your red shirts dumbass okay so the red shirts descend on wilmington and in the time leading up to the 1898 election they're like fucking crawling around at night they're breaking into the homes of black folks and white republicans they're threatening them with violence if they try to vote Mm -hmm. in the upcoming election a lot of time they'd actually just forgo the threat and just actually attack these people in their homes so the night before the actual election a racist by the name of alfred m waddle it might be waddell but i don't care just Uh, call him waddle yeah waddle (laughs) spoke (laughs) at a meeting in wilmington that was sponsored by the secret nine and the white supremacy campaign and said the following quote you are the sons of noble ancestry you are anglo-saxons you are armed and prepared and you will do your duty go to the polls tomorrow and if you find the negro out voting tell him to leave the polls if he refuses kill him shoot him down in his tracks end quote fuck's sake if you go do a little bit of a of a deep dive into i mean it's a it's a bit of a nasty space to nasty headspace to spend time in but if you go and you spend any time looking at the clan white supremacy you're going to see that phrase anglo-saxon come up a lot um which this is just a little side note to say that even within the world of white supremacy not all whites are created equal oh yeah Um, I mean, as we've talked about, they hated Jews, they hated Catholics. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in there. So these guys, I guess, fancied themselves Vikings. Okay, so some terribly brave Black and Republican souls tried to face the polls the following day, but enough stayed away that the election went to the Democrats. Mm -hmm. In addition to this, these idiots also stuffed the ballot boxes. Mm -hmm. So it was the case during this election that they had more votes than people in certain districts in that election. I mean, shocking that people like this were probably not great at math. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I think they didn't, they just, they didn't care. I mean, I literally saw something about them throwing out ballots on account of the paper not being white enough. Mm. Yeah. These are yikes. Just bad people. Yeah. Just, I mean, something's, something's just, I mean, you're a few crayon short if 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 that matters that much to you. Okay, 
So after the election, Wilmington basically is a powder keg. Like the thing mm-hmm. is, is a powder keg. It's waiting to explode. The city's multiracial government was supposed to be in place until March of 1899 when the city would hold its elections. So yeah. they've replaced like the state government, but Wilmington still has its own multiracial city government. But of course racists couldn't stand for that. So the Secret Nine, the Red Shirts, the White Government Union, and some other assholes spent the days before the election doing stuff like making sure that stores didn't sell any ammunition to Black customers Mm -hmm. and talking to reporters they'd brought from national newspapers about the imminent race riot that the Black community was planning. This is going to come into play a little bit later. So they were really, really, really laying the groundwork to spin a specific narrative. So there we go. Good job, everybody. On November 9th, the day after the election, the Wilmington Messenger publishes the White Declaration of Independence, which among some other bullshit stated that whites would never again, I'm sorry, this is a quote, uh, that quote, whites would never again be ruled by men of African origin, end quote, that black men could no longer vote, that white men would be hired over black folks, and that Manley, the owner of the Wilmington Record, had had 24 hours to leave the city. Mm -hmm. It's honestly likely that Manley was already long gone by this point. Like he could see the writing on the wall. He wasn't sticking around for it. They also demand the resignations of the mayor and the chief of police. Mm -hmm. On November 10th, Waddle leads the red shirts and uh, some of their jaggles to to the offices of the the, why can't I say this city's name? (laughs) Of the Wilmington record. It's about 2,000 a-holes in total. And they, they burn the building to the ground. Yeah. And then they basically just open fire on the town. Mm -hmm. While the crowd is terrorizing the town, Waddle forces freely elected officials to resign. Wilmington's black women and children get the hell out of Dodge and they spend the next three days hiding in the surrounding swamps and in the black cemetery. On the 11th, prominent black and white Republican citizens are marched to the train station and told to leave or they'd be killed. Over the next few weeks, Wilmington saw a massive exodus of over 2,000 black people who left and never came back. And it forever changed the, race, the racial makeup of the city. Yeah. The loss of black life in Wilmington is thought to be between 60 and 300 souls. There is no way to know the actual death toll of this. The Wilmington coup paved the way for other cities and towns to impose Jim Crow laws, and it Mm -hmm. would take over a century for the actual story to hit history books. So probably a reason why you haven't heard of this is because it's probably gone under other names, but the massacre was wrongly described as a riot by Wilmington's black community that had to be quelled in order to reestablish good government in the city. It was basically posited as the the black population of Wilmington just decided to throw a riot and burn their town in which they were doing very well and were leading very productive lives and, and creating you know a a society for themselves and just went nuts and decided to do this in the doing of this these reports also left out an important distinction from other racial massacres like tulsa and rosewood florida in that they made it seem like wilmington was another instance of spontaneous bloodshed and not the premeditated attack on black life prosperity and power that actually was it was all very like we don't know what happened it's just everybody lost their minds and we had to stop them instead of being like no i mean we were systematically going through and like not letting 
not giving them access to ammunition in the local shops and right. shit like that. So in 2000, North Carolina's General Assembly created the 1898 Wilmington Race Riot Commission, which essentially did a deep dive on the events of November 1898. It resulted in a 500-page report that examined the history of the coup and the massacre and also provided recommendations to, quote, repair the moral, economic, civic, and political damage wrought by the violence and discrimination resulting from a conspiracy to retake control of the city, county, and state governments by the Democratic Party's white supremacy campaign, end quote. I mean, good for them, I guess. It's like a little too little too late, maybe, you said, uh, in 2000? <laughs> in 2000, so yeah. two years later? Yeah, I... <sighs> I mean, I don't want to like be too shitty about it, but like, it's just, I mean, it is, it's like you said, like, I've never heard this story. I hadn't heard of the Tulsa race massacre until fairly recently. It's just amazing to me that it's taken so long for people to start talking about this stuff. Right. And that was actually one of the things that got brought up in the report from, I'm sorry, in the report, in the article from the Atlantic that was written by Tanaisi Coates is that Mm -hmm. he's like, we need black historians because the history that we are getting is not it's white history it's not black history it's also why black history month is important guys sorry like i i I know you don't want (laughs) to saying this like a bunch of white supremacists are listening to this (laughs) yes i were alienating our target audience here Let's tune into that that Jew Mexican podcast that we like so much. Um, okay, but yeah, I know there is. I know there are people out there who get like so grumpy about things like Black History Month, you know, Women's History Month. Well, it's, I mean, it's like Hispanic heritage, like uh, all of that bullshit. But that's why it's because, unfortunately, white people did a shit job of well, passing on an actual history and and particularly white men because it's even like you know the episode you did where you talked about what was it the night of terror mm-hmm. you know like we need more women historians we need more black historians we need you know because it's like history yeah has been written un- by unreliable narrators unreliable narrators exactly yeah unfortunately so yeah i i feel the same way i'm like i'm like it took you all until 2000 and At the same time, because history in this case was written by, you know, like literal white supremacists, Mm -hmm. the story was, well, there was this crazy race riot where all of these, you know, black people in Wilmington went crazy and they, and that's what it was. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of like, like hearing the, the story that had been given and being like, oh, wait, is there anything else to that? Because this information was readily available. It's just that nobody was curious enough to do anything about it. Right. Well, and it didn't serve their interests. Correct. So, yeah. So former Wilmington mayor and member of this commission. Oh, and I didn't write down his name. His name is Harper something, I think. Mm -hmm. Ruh-roh. Uh, I'll put that in. I'll I'll put a picture of him in the (laughs) social media because he so he came out and said, quote, essentially, it crippled a segment of our population that hasn't recovered in 107 years. Yeah. End quote. And that was no lie. The commission recommended 10 bills to provide reparations for victims, descendants in the way of economic and business development, scholarships, etc. The legislature did not pass a single one. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. It's not surprising, but it is deeply disappointing. The commission also called out the newspapers, the Raleigh News and Observer, which 
still exists mm-hmm. and the Charlotte Observer, which still exists for their parts in the massacre and called on them to provide scholarships to minority students. Mm-hmm. In 2005, the League of the South, a white supremacist group, set up a website to basically tell their side of the story, which is, you know, just a bunch of white supremacist yeah, bullshit. Yeah. The website disappeared in 2013. Mm. Interesting. Hopefully FBI entered the chat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in 2006, the Raleigh News and Observer issued a special feature acknowledging its role as a leader in the coup's propaganda. The Charlotte Observer that same year stated, quote, it wanted to be on the right side of history and issued an editorial with a full apology. That's good. Yeah. Something. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it is... It is something. In 2007, the North Carolina Democratic Party legit acknowledged and renounced the actions of party leaders during the insurrection and white supremacy campaigns. I think that's important. I actually also think that the Democratic Party, the National Democratic Party, should be like, hey, yes, we know we did this. We acknowledge our past as this Mm -hmm. and, you know, our are working to ensure that that is never the ideals of this party right, or any party ever again. You know, a little bit of ownership, I think, would not hurt them in that case. Okay, again, in 2007, a bill was introduced to allow descendants of those injured, killed, or who suffered personal or property losses from the coup to file lawsuits. It didn't get any further than its introduction. Mm-hmm. Advocates have lobbied to get the accurate events covered in state's school curriculum and historians have tried, have like, you know, been working to get a memorial built. In 2017, two Wilmington writers backed by the UN, UNCW, which is University of North Carolina, Wilmington. I think we have friends who went there. Um, <laughs> backed by UNCW and working with local middle schoolers, started a project to find, salvage, and transcribe copies of the Daily Record, which was Manley's newspaper. Oh, wow. Yeah, that would be eight, amazing. Yeah. Eight pages have been found. The legible pages will eventually be available through the Library of Congress's Chronicling America series. In 2018, North Carolina's Highway Historical Marker Committee approved the commemorative plaque that reads, quote, armed white men met at Armory here, November 10th, 1898, marched six blocks and burned Office of Daily Record, Black-owned newspaper. Violence left untold numbers of African-Americans dead, led to overthrow of city government and installation of coup leader as mayor, was part of a statewide political campaign based on calls for white supremacy and the exploitation of racial prejudice. And that is the story of the Wilmington Massacre slash insurrection slash coup. Wow, that's crazy. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and like I said, I've never heard that. None of it is terribly surprising to me from what I know about the history of the Klan mm-hmm. and various other, like there were the White Leagues and et cetera, various other white supremacist organizations. Yeah. And I, it is a fact, we were kind of texting about this a little bit. It's like almost something I'd want to do as a podcast episode, but it's so complicated that I uh-huh. like just the whole like how the part, like just the process of the parties really shifting ideologies over time. 
<laughs> it is so it's just such a tangled mess <laughs> yeah so what i'll probably also do is try to it's going to take a couple of slides but like i'm not going to post any of the fucking nasty ass political cartoons no. there's not a lot image wise for me uh with the exception of the the mayor his name, his name forgot. i forgot to <laughs> Sorry, bruh. Um, <laughs> you know he's listening. He's like, guys. Guys, I, I like, was trying. Um, uh, uh, we got you, bruh. Yeah, we'll get, we got you. We got you. But like I had sent you that graphic. So yeah. okay. <laughs> I was texting with Scotty earlier this week because we knew we were going to do this subject. And I was like, okay. And throughout this, you know, I was seeing that, you know, the, the, the Democrats that were being described in the story didn't really bear any resemblance to the democratic party as I know it now. And so I was trying to figure out, okay, well, when did they switch parties? And I'm looking and like the Reddit page again is like eight miles long and nobody's giving me a concise thing. I finally go to Reddit because Reddit's got some people who are like, okay, I can explain this to you in like layman's terms. And there was somebody had posted, I think it was on the like either history or historic or like ask a historian or something. And somebody had gone on there and was like, can somebody like very concisely explain to me how the ideologies of the democratic and republican parties got switched in this country and nobody could like 37 (laughs) paragraphs later people were like then you get to like you know goldwater and it was like oh my god but somebody had posted this graphic and they were like i find this helpful (laughs) (laughs) and it is this like roadmap of of the political parties because you know it wasn't it wasn't always democrat and republican we had the federalists we had the whig party um yeah and so it's this long thing i'm gonna have to split it up uh it's also like you're not going to be able to read it but i can also post the link to where i found it on reddit to sort of show you that this was not it was in no way shape or form a straight road right i mean what i know like i know a little bit about like you know sort of the 50s and 60s and actually a little bit what i'm going to talk about today is kind of uh setting the stage for some of this shift because i'm going to talk about fdr but like the the democrats remained a pretty race or at least had a very like racist southern faction up through the 50s and really things kind of started to shift with lbj kind of embracing right voting rights and you know more and more democrats kind of moving towards supporting civil rights which pissed off the dixiecrats and then the republicans were like yoink with the southern strategy like hey here's a whole population of voters we can go after yeah but that's like the end of the story (laughs) like yeah there's so much more that leads up to it yeah and like literally you know when i say the west it was like as the western part of the country was beginning to be settled People were like, look, and you know, I talked about like the Gilded Age and industrialism and all that stuff. And a, a sort of, you know, nugget thesis that somebody said of what was going on during that time was that when, so the Republican Party has always been the party of business, right. essentially. And when businesses needed big government, Republicans were like, yeah, big government, big government. Cool, cool, mm-hmm. cool. Let's get you railroads. Let's get you, you know, tariff protection, uh, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then when the when business was like, hey, cool, like we're done with that, Republicans were like, cool, cool, cool. Small government, small government. Yeah, small we don't government. want, we want like, I mean, it's, it's like the, you know, we want all the like bailouts and subsidies and stuff. We don't want the regulation. Mm-hmm. And that's still basically what's going on. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's just that at that time, the Democrats were the Republicans. 
(laughs) So that's, it's a little like, so I guess a better way to say it would be conservatives have always been on the side of big business. Right. And they change whether or not they want big government or small government based on how it will help or hinder big business. Right. Yeah. And like I have heard and like, sorry, any Republicans who are not assholes listening to this don't want to totally bag on your party, but I'm going to bag on your party a little bit. Like I, <laughs> the views of this podcast are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, there is, there's this like thing that, people like and i've actually heard several republican but you know sort of never trump republican commentators kind of make this point mm-hmm. but like you know one of the biggest mistakes that the republican party made is with the southern strategy you know because at the time the republicans were sort of the party of small government you know less regulation business but they weren't like this moral majority right-wing religious slash uh white nationalist right faction you know mm-hmm. but then with the defection of the dixiecrats from the democratic party they were like let's ally ourselves with these people and that kind of created sort of a condition where the way i've heard it explained by these kind of never trump republicans is it's like you know the sort of pro-business what you would call the chamber of commerce quote-unquote wing Mm -hmm. of the republican party sort of thought like well, let's see if we can ride this tiger for a while of like getting in bed with like the more, I guess, fringy extremist right. wing of the party. And I don't remember who it was that said this, but it's like, you know, there's only so long you can ride a tiger before you end up in the tiger's mouth. Yeah. And that's kind of what we see <laughs> yeah. going on on january 6th well and i mean we saw it with the ratification of the equal rights amendment too you know uh phyllis schlafly was -hmm. out there really trying to court the sort of conservative women's vote and then all of a sudden uh, let me be careful about how i say this because there are going to be people who are like oh yo phyllis schlafly it wasn't like she was like a fine and dandy lady outside of this but in the doing of that she also courted fucking white supremacists Mm -hmm. like it's I mean, it's I, been. It's, I don't know why they go hand in hand, but well, was, they do. Was, and was, you're known by the company you keep. Yeah, basically, it goes back to Nixon post Goldwater, and it was this kind of easy coalition that they could form. Yeah, you know, and I think because the Democrats had you know really had a lot of power since FDR for a long time. And right. They wanted to break that power, so it's like you know the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and unfortunately. Yeah, but when the enemy of your enemy is a white supremacist, yeah, like exactly. I, when I mean, the it's... enemy of your enemy is a white supremacist, you have to deal with the consequences of getting lumped in with white supremacists. Yeah, but they didn't and, want and to. And I no, but I just continue to think about how after after September 11th and I mean hell even after bombing at the Boston Marathon right mm-hmm. that there were a lot of people that were like well you know if these if if like Middle Eastern people don't like that they're being lumped in with these terrorists then they need to disavow them and it's like if we have not already reached that point we are quickly reaching that point with oh I think we've long with the conservative yeah with with the conservative party I I like because uh, it- I it's and, easy if you're a Republican to disavow David Duke. It's, yeah. it's less easy to disavow your own voters who, like, respond to Ronald Reagan's dog whistles about welfare queens and stuff. Right. You know, yeah. it's like, yeah, okay, the guy who's a literal Klan member, you don't get, like, courage points for saying, yeah, we don't. We don't associate yeah. ourselves with him. But you're associating yourself with people who are, like, two steps, like, separated from him. Yeah. You know? 
And, you and know, this has been going on since at least the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. And the thing is, is like if white supremacists didn't make their home within the Republican Party, it would be a lot easier to just go, okay, well, I don't agree with the Republican Party. Like, you right. know, I don't, we can't be a nation that is of this size, but be like, sorry, everybody's states, like states rights and small government and y'all do whatever you, like we're a nation. And if, if we don't want to be a nation, then we, we need to not be a nation and we need to be like Europe. We need to say that we're 50 countries and that's how we right. rock and roll. So I don't, I don't, I still wouldn't like believe in the tenets of conservatism, but it would be that I'd be like, I don't agree with that. Right. The scary thing, and again, you know, there's a lot of like, it's it's the loud minority and all that stuff. But if they are in your party, like it's clear right. that people who are, are, are Democrats or progressives or whatever are not, like, they're not, like, we are never going to be listened to because I, they I think mean, we're communists. Yeah. Well, and I think the mistake that many on that side of the political aisle have made is that they thought this was something they could control. Like they thought like they could sort of tap into the energy and like, like I said, sort of dog whistle, nod and wink just enough to keep the support without ever like having to fully embrace essentially what a huge chunk of their political base wants. And this, and it's gotten, uh, it got out of their control and like, Trump was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. And like, uh, who was it? I was listening to some political news podcast sort of after the whole insurrection last week. Mm-hmm. And I think it might've been Chuck Todd on Meet the Press. I could be wrong about this. Basically said, like ended the show with, well, you know, if the Republicans don't disavow this, if they don't take care of this, like the Republican party, as we know, it's going to be on the ash heap of history. And I think that's probably true because I think it has gotten out of control. I think, and and now it's just cannibalizing itself. And yes, the Democratic Party has its own problems, and you know, one hundred percent. This yeah, is not, not to this is not to paint the Democratic Party as some type of fucking you know right. white knight bullshit. There's there is a lot of stuff. Members of our own party who have been elect, who've become elected officials, uh, and right. stuff that that records that you know we need to we need to hold people accountable yeah. to. And, but and the Democratic Party, at least since the '60s, has been this kind of rowdy coalition of competing interests that don't necessarily get along all that well so it's like yeah you know but like i think i feel like the democratic party kind of comes by that sort of honestly and i think the republican party really was just trying to be like no we're this unified block and like ignoring the simmering thing underneath which goes back to exactly the era you're talking really yeah. goes back to the founding of the country you know yeah i mean this yeah. has been with us since the beginning it used to be in the democratic party now it's in the republican party hopefully it's gonna end up being you know hopefully this is like the beginning of some sort of reckoning with that but i right right and see, I, i'm cynical enough that it's like, <laughs> well and i think and i mean honestly like you know let's i i will be fair here on account of the fact that i do know and love deeply love a couple of registered republicans yeah but, um, i do too and by the way we're not like sitting here saying all republic we're just saying this is like a problem <laughs> look this isn't a like this is a not all republicans <laughs> yeah like many of no. our friends who are republicans <laughs> who might be listening <laughs> no, but I really think like what what what's at the crux of this is this sort of myth of American exceptionalism. Yeah. And this you know, and that that leads us to things like that could never happen here. I I sit there and I see, you know, I've I've grown up listening to the stories of of what happened in Bolivia in the 1970s, what happened I mean all across 
uh, Latin America in the 1970s, fucking Operation Condor and all that bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, and to see the way it's, I think it's very interesting to, to spend time with Latin Americans during something like this, because at least for the Latin American folks that I know, it's the sort of like, what did they fucking think was going to happen? And this mm-hmm. idea of, you know, there's checks and balances in place and there's systems in place to, to prevent all this stuff from happening. And we think, we fool ourselves, I think, a little bit into thinking that we built such a perfect constitution that nothing like this could ever happen. But we don't know if it can happen until somebody fucks around and finds out, which unfortunately I think is what is going on right now. Right. I mean, I think that's that's the like lesson that I take away is like this shit's real fragile. Like the shit yeah. is not automatic. And no. yeah, there's nothing that's exceptional about our way of government because unfortunately the way our, our constitution and our Congress and presidential sort of separation of powers was set up is is all meant to foster cooperation. Like one thing that the founding fathers did not foresee was that we would divide into these partisan loyalties where the partisan loyalties kind of overcome loyalty to like getting shit done for the country. Yeah. And that is absolutely happening now more in one party than the other. Right. There is a political, and I'm not, again, not talking about Republican people, you know, our friends and people who are, you know, well-meaning and really as troubled by what's going on as we are, but like the party apparatus that, is currently in existence is like not operating in good faith at the moment. Yeah. And really kind of hasn't been for a while, but it's, it's, you know, under the grip of a demagogue. And I think we're seeing the signs of that maybe coming to an end, but yeah, we'll find out. Okay. Anyway, moving right along into, moving right uh, along <laughs> into a somewhat lighter hearted, uh, to overthrow the United <laughs> States government. Oh my God. <laughs> Look, guys, buckle in for a rousing good tale of another over- attempted overthrow of the United yeah. States government. And what I'll say about my story is that it's it's both sort of equal levels potentially would have been really dangerous and also real stupid and really silly. As I got into it, there was a lot of me reading it being like, why the fuck did how'd they think this was going to fuck? <laughs> so let me tell you about it. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to tell you about the business plot. Yes. Otherwise known as the Wall Street putsch. <laughs> sort of like the beer hall putsch that we, yes. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, that we talk about with the Nazis. This was a bunch of like effete Wall Street people trying to do their version of that and doing it very badly. Ooh. Um, so this took place during the early days of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's administration. So a little bit about uh, FDR in his first 100 days, because this is important context to understand. So Franklin Delano Roosevelt, of course, part of the Roosevelt dynasty, you know, his uncle or not uncle, but like some cousin, third cousin, something, something. You know, Teddy mm-hmm. Roosevelt was, of course, you know, also president. FDR had been governor of New York. Mm-hmm. You know, rich, patrician family. But he was a very, he was sort of the first step in creating what we know of as the, quote, big government Democratic Party of today. Yep. And this all really was because of the context of him being elected at the end of the, or at the beginning of the Great Depression and his massive, massive, very ambitious plans to uh, try to get us out of the Depression, which we now know is the New Deal. Um, Look, yeah, I'm not saying that the New Deal was perfect, but my God, the ambition. Like, it's staggering. There was a lot of good shit. Well, there was a reason for it. So FDR, he was inaugurated on March 4th, 1933 
succeeding Republican President Herbert Hoover, who is largely, I think, thought of today as being like, not a bad guy, but kind of a terrible president who uh, was just really out of touch. And his, you know, we're four years into the Great Depression at this point the FDR is inaugurated. I'm not going into like all the ways Herbert Hoover fucked up in those four <laughs> years, but like he, he wasn't, he was, his plans to get us out of the depression were not, let's just say not very successful. No. So FDR was elected on these big expansive plans to tackle the great depression. And just to give a sense of like, cause I don't think for like our generation or even our parents' generation, it's really possible to truly understand how terrible the Great Depression was. There's just a few statistics about the Depression. So worldwide... Hit me uh, with it. Worldwide GDP, this worldwide GDP, okay. fell by 15%. Now, <sighs> got to keep in mind during the Great Recession of 2008, uh-huh. worldwide GDP fell by 1%. Oh! So orders of magnitude. International trade in this country fell by 50%. Personal wealth was just wiped out across the country. Many, many people who had been, you know, sort of living it up during the roaring 20s, all that Wall Street speculation were just overnight. I mean, and it was, it was overnight, right? It was was like woke up the day after and was like, oh my God. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, I I did not write down the date, but it was, you know, stock market crashed 1929 and that was it. Banks started closing. At the same time, unrelated but related, was the Dust Bowl, um, which was basically an agricultural disaster across the Midwest, largely caused by unsustainable farming practices, exacerbated by a drought. And this just, my grandfather was from Oklahoma at this time period, and he essentially, like, was a hobo during this time riding the rails looking for work you know because there was just there was nothing like lost the farm everything you know these people were ruined unemployment was around 23 percent but in some places it rose to 33 percent do we know okay and sorry if this is a (laughs) if you're like i don't know the answer to that amelia but i'm wondering what industries either weren't too badly affected or ended up flourishing well, one I know that kind of flourished actually was the movie industry. But yeah. I only know that because I'm a film student and I've heard that history. But I know that too on account of the fact it, it's something that ends up in a lot of um, like arts administrators' pockets. Mm-hmm. Is And again, guys, I, I know that we really want to sit here and perpetuate this myth that like the arts are luxury. But I'm going to ask you what you've spent your time doing the last nine months mm-hmm. uh, 10 months and where you know what you've been staying sane staying sane if, uh, if you have been staying if, sane. if you've been staying sane which we hope you have but it's it's in creative content and the same was true for the great depression yeah and i'm gonna get a little bit into some of that here in just a second okay, um, cool. but uh yeah i i did not i did not write down I know that agriculture was very decimated. I know that like the financial industry was decimated. Banks were folding. I think industry in general took a big downturn. Yeah. But I don't know specifically like which industries were able to weather the storm better than others. So like I said, Herbert Hoover, where he was kind of largely seen as feckless and ineffectual 
in dealing with the depression. There were shanty towns that sprung up all over the country from pe- displaced people that mm-hmm. became known as Hoovervilles. So it kind of tells you how he was seen <laughs> at the time. Um, I live in a fucking Hooverville. Yeah. Yikes. It's like not good branding. Not good branding. <laughs> <laughs> so FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, he coined the term New Deal in his acceptance speech for the Democratic nomination in July of 1932. And then after he was inaugurated in March of 1933, he gave a 1933 radio address where he talked about his first hundred days, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And this is where we kind of get the concept of the first hundred days of a presidency. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like whenever anyone's running for president now, you always get the TV ads, you know, in my first hundred days, I will. Yep. This kind of comes from FDR. Mm. It's also important to talk about these radio addresses. These were his famous fireside chats. And they're... Okay. Yeah. And they're largely credited with boosting public confidence at the time. And they're seen as crucial to his success as president and his popularity. Mm. Because he really was he really was positioning himself to be this reassuring figure. You yeah. Know? And it's important to note that the Great Depression... Like, FDR himself was not able to end the Great Depression. It lasted through the 30s. Kind of ebbed and flowed, different peaks and valleys. It really was World War. It was our entry into World War II that was what pulled us out of the Depression. And there's arguments about that, too. I'm not going to get into it. Right. But there was this growth in public confidence because of FDR and his fireside chats. This also helped him really soften the ground for these big, expansive, ambitious programs he wanted to. And all the while, he's really kind of hiding the fact that his body's being ravaged by polio. Yeah. Yeah. I think nobody knew that he was in a wheelchair at the time. It's nuts to think that if FDR had come along today with the exact same plan, just the optics of that. Yeah. He would have been able to do it. Yeah. And I think people need to understand, like, there are things we take for granted, sort of social safety net things we take Mm -hmm. for granted in this country that just did not exist at the time. Mm -hmm. Even things like Medicare and Medicaid, this wasn't, you know, that that was actually LBJ, like, years after FDR. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, but like in the 1920s, there was really very little protection for poor people. Yeah. There was very little social safety net. And then when, you know, 33% or more of the country suddenly was thrown headfirst into poverty, I mean, this was a massive upheaval. Well, okay, hold on. Even like the fact that you could know that, like, if you put $100 into the bank, that regardless, it's still going to be there in the morning. It doesn't that yeah. also come? I'm about to get to Okay, sorry. No, 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 that's a perfect segue. So in his first 100 days, the first thing he enacted was the Emergency Baking Act, March 9th, 1933. This allowed him to create federal deposit insurance, which is exactly what you were talking about. Okay. Where you can be rest assured that your money is going to stay your money, even if the bank has problems. So this was crucial in convincing Americans that banks would be safe. Because part of what caused all these banks to collapse is when Wall Street collapsed in 1929, there was a big run on the banks. People Mm -hmm. just racing to get their money out of the banks. So that was his first act. His next act was he created the Federal Emergency Relief Administration, which was known as FARA. Later in 1936 became the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, which we've all heard of. Uh, This was in May 1933 that he created FARA. It was a massive jobs program that really was meant to allow unskilled workers access to federal jobs. And this included everything from vocational training programs 
to actually hiring people for jobs. The idea basically being that it psychologically was beneficial to put people back to work rather than simply put them on, quote, the dole. (sighs) Now, once the WPA, or once FARA became the WPA years later, you know, Mm -hmm. it's famous for these big infrastructure projects, roads, bridges, Mm -hmm. also things like Griffith Observatory in LA Mm -hmm. is a WPA project. The Timberline Lodge in Oregon is a WPA project. But it's also important, there's a couple things to mention about the WPA. It had a disproportionate benefit to black people. Mm -hmm. Um, Because uh, this was, for many black people, this was their first opportunity to get this kind of vocational training, to get these kind of jobs. So yeah, it was helping everybody. Or the idea was that it was helping everybody. But one side effect is that it actually was a disproportionate benefit to the black population, which uh, some people I read here and there, I didn't write this down, but some people credit this with sort of creating conditions that would then lead to the civil rights movement. Because it was, again, a way for black people to start accumulating some wealth, some social capital, et cetera. Yeah. Another thing that's important, this goes with what we're talking about with the movie industry is the WPA was not just this big infrastructure project you know, part of the WPA was the Federal Theater Project, the Federal Ugh. Writers Project, Federal Arts Project, etc. Guys, at some point, there's going to be at least an episode, if not maybe a series of episodes about the New Deal. And I cannot fucking wait to yeah. talk to y'all about the Federal Theater Project. Yeah, we should we should like dig into like the specifics of some of these because I'm just Ugh. kind of bullet listing them. Yeah. But I mean, this was radical at the time. On top yeah. of, so that's FARA, which like mm-hmm. I said, later became the WPA. He also created the Civilian Conservation Corps. This was on March 31st, 1933. This also was a big jobs program. The goal was to create employment opportunities for at least 250,000 people. So the Civilian Conservation Corps, they're busy planting trees, working on soil erosion, flood control, forest protection, it actually became the most popular New Deal program. I think when people talk about the Civilian Conservation Corps and the WPA, they kind of lump them together as one mm-hmm. thing. They're mm-hmm. actually different uh, different programs. After that, there was also the creation of the Agricultural Adjustment Administration in May 1933. This was meant to raise crop prices that had been decimated both by the uh, Wall Street collapse and by the Dust Bowl. It also helped farmers modernize their equipment, modernize their methods, create mm. more sustainable methods. I mean, this is like far thinking way ahead of its time. I know that's, I mean, it's just, it's so, I cannot believe that he had, I, I, honestly, that he had the balls to do it. I mean, it's yeah. massive. Yeah. I mean, it really was massive. You also had the National Industry Recovery Act of June, 1933. This also helped fund public works and infrastructure projects. It was meant to essentially restart industry in the country. It was also it was meant in some ways to counter the massive deflation which happened after the economy collapsed. And then, of course, mm-hmm. sort of linked in with the WPA was the Tennessee Valley Authority, which was a, a massive plan to build dams all along the Tennessee River. Mm-hmm. So it was not only a jobs program, it also would help prevent flooding and deforestation. It would provide hydroelectric power. So there was like an element of like green to the Yeah, I don't know that they would have called it that at the time. No, but like but, conservation, yeah. like all of this stuff. This seems to be a thing that the Roosevelts in particular were real big on. because. Oh yeah, that's right. For I, I may be wrong. You can fact check me on this or we're talking about doing a fact check episode at some point. <laughs> 
but I believe Teddy Roosevelt is like he's why we have national parks. He's why we have national parks. Yeah, I, think, I mean, I think I there's think some other things right. about him that are deeply problematic. But oh, of course, I mean, there are plenty of things about Roosevelt, <laughs> FDR, that were problematic too. I mean, oh. none of these people are deities, but no, but yeah, uh, if you if you if you like Yellowstone, thank thank a Roosevelt. Thank yeah, thank Roosevelt <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that might have to be our title for <laughs> um, so predictably mm-hmm. this pissed off a lot of people of course a lot of conservatives i think across party lines particularly like you mentioned the gilded age you know we're talking about like sort of the the children and grandchildren of the robber barons mm-hmm. um you know big you know, the richest people in the world, they didn't like this because for a few reasons. One was because of all the upheaval going on around the world, there was just a general widespread fear of communism after the overthrow of the czars. You know, if you think about it, this is only maybe, maybe a couple decades after the Bolshevik revolution. Right. Well, it's it's interesting too, because even within like in in the propaganda that I was seeing for my story, even then it was like communism. And it's like, Mm -hmm. guys, we've look, everybody calm your tits about communism. Okay. Like, (laughs) I mean, it's been a fucking, it's been a fucking century and like a half, like relax please about it it is nowhere near the biggest threat our nation faces right now i mean to be fair like (laughs) talking about the soviet union and and some of the big communist countries they were not great um no and i'm like this but it wasn't the communism it was the cult of personality right and that's it's just it's 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 insane let me put it this way it is insane slash hilarious to me how long communism has been this country's boogeyman yeah that's I mean, it's all insane to me that it still is but I, anyway. that's what i'm saying yeah okay. so there's this general fear of communism which meant there was a general sympathy for the rise of the fascists in italy and germany now to be fair this uh-huh. is before the the atrocities particularly of the german fascists mm-hmm. you know, the nazis were widely known, but it was pretty clear that they were anti-Semitic, authoritarian, you know, power dominating, you know, right. conquering countries, you know, brown shirts, black shirts, etc. Um, so like sorry. <laughs> I'm just I'm I'm giggling because I've seen a fair amount of videos of the stuff that happened last Wednesday, wherein the crowd starts to call the Capitol Police brown shirts. Yeah. I think of of that particular faction, one of the things that is like both hilarious and terribly sad is that they they really do think that communism and fascism are the same thing. And they think yeah. that a lot of these insults can just be used back and forth. Right. Um, they're not. Yeah, no, they're not. So, so like I said, there was a general, not widespread, but I think wider spread than we may realize, sympathy towards the fascists because they were anti-communist. Mm-hmm. There was also a woman named Sally Denton. Uh, she's an author of a book called uh, Plots Against the President. And I'm taking this quote from a podcast okay. that I listened to, where she said, there was a sense that Roosevelt was radically changing the relationship between the government and the governed. And I would say, yeah, accurate. Will you say um, that again? 
there was a sense that Roosevelt was radically changing the relationship between the government and the governed. Mm. So people were really afraid of him. And then this, of course, led to lots of fears about what Roosevelt was up to. You know, he was seen as a communist stooge. He was seen as the tool of a massive Jewish conspiracy because, of course, he was. Yeah. So you had people from Wall Street interests who were against him. You had these reactionary veterans organizations um, who Mm -hmm. were against him. You had demagogues, like right-wing demagogues, like a guy, a famous, I would say he was sort of the Tucker Carlson of his day. (laughs) A guy named Father Coughlin who was a priest who went out and gave these rallies and just like railed against the Jews and, you know, against these like, you know, left wing conspiracies and blah, 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 blah. And then of course you had the American Liberty League, which was a group of financiers and bankers. They were essentially the wealthiest people in America. Okay. They controlled assets worth more than $40 billion Uh, for some context in 2021 money. That's, north of 800 billion dollars okay. these were all people who did not like fdr and this american liberty liberty league is going to be very important to okay most. now a lot of these financiers particularly these american liberty league types were also freaked out by the decline of the gold standard and thought that the currency not backed by the price of gold would spiral out of control lead to national bankruptcy so i don't really understand the gold standard i've tried to read up on it and it gets into like you know, I don't, I, I just don't understand math and economics. <laughs> so I'm just going to read, this is what Wikipedia had to say <laughs> okay. about the gold standard. It says, a gold standard is a monetary system in which the standard economic unit of account is based on a fixed quantity of gold. The gold standard would, was widely used in the 19th and early part of the 20th century. Most nations abandoned the gold standard as the basis of their monetary systems at some point in the 20th century, although many still hold substantial gold reserves. So basically, this was, I'm not sure that Roosevelt in particular was like getting rid of the gold standard, but this was at the time where, you know, the the price of gold and the value of currency were becoming decoupled from what I understand. This was freaking out all these financiers and all these bankers who accused Roosevelt of removing gold backing of private wealth as an insidious plot to subsidize the poor. Basically, they, it all boils down to like, he's trying to subsidize the poor with our money, which, you know, again, not entirely inaccurate. But how did Um, you make that money? Exactly. (laughs) That's, that would be my rebuttal to their argument. Yeah, like unless you went out and like mined that gold for yourself. Yeah. I don't know. Okay, continue. (laughs) (laughs) So now a little bit of also background to this uh, plot was something called the Bonus Army. Okay. So this was in July of 1932. 40,000 people, including 17,000 World War I veterans, came to Washington, D.C. and set up a tent city. And they were there to demand that they be paid bonuses that had been promised to them by the World War Adjusted Compensation Act of 1924. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of support for this bonus army. And this was before FDR had been sworn in. This was sort of the end of Hoover's administration. And they were basically protesting Hoover saying, hey, we fought in your war. You're not paying us the bonuses you promised. So we're going to set up camp 
essentially outside outside your window kind yeah. of thing. Now they were sort of rallying around a guy who it wasn't clear to me that he was like leading this, but he was sort of a figurehead for this army or he was like a hero of this bonus army. Mm-hmm. It was a guy named Marine Major General Smedley Butler. And I just Ooh. gotta say I if I, I feel like that's have... the name of a show dog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I feel say, like it's the name of like a corgi. If I ever do have a child, I'm male, female, <laughs> non-binary. I'm so tempted to name this child Smedley Butler Milder. <laughs> you have to do the whole thing, though. What was the entire Marine title? Major General <laughs> Smedley Butler. <laughs> That's it. Seriously, though, is that not the name of um, like of like a sh- a show like a Lhasa Apso? Yeah. <laughs> Like a three-time Best in Show winner. Right. (laughs) Marine Major General Smedley Butler. So a little bit about Smedley Butler, who actually sounds like a pretty cool guy. He was a self-described Republican, but he had nevertheless switched his support to Roosevelt. And this is why, just spoiler alert, this business plot's real dumb. Okay. Because they targeted this guy or they tried to recruit this guy who was like very publicly supportive of roosevelt who had started denouncing the excesses of capitalism he actually called himself he said for 33 years i had been a high-class muscle man for wall street then he also said he was a he had been a racketeer for capitalism so you know maybe not the guy you want to suck into your like plot of oligarchs to overthrow the country but anyway so a little bit about smedley butler uh he had served 34 years in the marine corps fought in all the major conflicts of that time he fought in the spanish-american war the philippine-american war the boxer rebellion and of course world war one he was he had been awarded multiple medals of honor he had also gotten the army distinguished service medal the navy distinguished service medal and the marine corps brevet medal So decorated, decorated soldier. And at this point, he had become a tireless advocate for veterans' rights. He was immensely popular with rank-and-file veterans and had become a household name because of all this activism. Now, Hoover, being the genius that he was, you know, here's these veterans who are like, hey, pay us the bonuses you promised. Yeah. And Hoover being like, nah, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send in the U.S. Cavalry to smash up your tents and city and send you on your way. Did not help him win re-election, we should say. Mm-hmm. You know, FDR's elected president. He's inaugurated. He starts this massive first 100-day program. Meanwhile, two members of the American Legion, a guy named Gerald C. McGuire and Bob Doyle. Um, not Bob Dole, Bob Doyle. <laughs> <laughs> He's been around forever. <laughs> I know. Um <laughs> They approached Butler and said, hey, we'd like to have a meeting with you. Now, I was not able to find out much about this Bob Doyle because he kind of drops out of the story from what I can tell at this point. It's mainly uh, the main character here is Gerald McGuire, who was a bond salesman and businessman. But from what I could tell was not like a super successful. He was kind of a middle class guy. He wasn't like one of these big oligarchs. Okay. But he was a member of the American Legion. A little history in the American Legion. It's a nonprofit organization of war veterans. It was formed in Paris in 1919 by officers and men of the American Expeditionary Forces. And then it's now headquartered in Indianapolis, Indiana. Its primary purpose is to lobby on behalf of veterans and to provide support to to the Veterans Health Administration. Uh, It's also instrumental in passing the GI Bill, which, among other things, like helps vets helped vets go to college after world war ii so american legion overall like good organization 
Mm-hmm. These assholes, not no. so much. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> They're basically using the American Legion as this kind of Trojan horse to mm. get this plot off the ground. McGuire and Doyle, they most likely went to uh, Smedley Butler because he was so popular as this decorated war hero and sort of tireless advocate for veterans. Their first meeting was pretty innocuous. They just asked him to speak at, a, at the Legion convention in Chicago. And then they said they wanted to talk to him afterwards about what they perceived as certain problems within the, the American Legion's like leadership structure. Okay. And Butler was open to this because he had seen firsthand that there were these administrative problems. And he saw them as interfering with the organization's effort to help vets, which was his main goal. Yeah. But then, the, so here's a quote. Oh, and by the way, just real quick, forgot to mention my sources. So my sources are mostly, of course, Wikipedia. Wikipedia. And then an article from ArcadiaPublishing.com called Smedley Butler in the 1930s Plot to Overthrow the President. Okay. Another one from a website called Timeline.com from August 2017. These Wall Street millionaires literally plotted to overthrow the president. Uh, <laughs> And then an episode of All Things Considered on NPR called When the Bankers Plotted to Overthrow FDR. Oh, wow. Okay. This quote is from the Arcadia publishing article. It says, you know, this is after, you know, they had they'd gone to Butler, said, hey, we want you to speak at our convention and we'd like to talk to you about these problems within the American Legion. He was like, cool, cool, cool. Let's talk. And then according to ArcadiaPublishing.com, quote, however, over subsequent meetings with the two men, Butler quickly began to suspect that something was amiss. During their second, <laughs> yeah, something was amiss. During their second meeting, McGuire showed Butler bank statements amounting to over a hundred thousand U.S. dollars, which would be valued at about two million dollars today, mm-hmm. which he hoped Butler would use to bring veteran supporters to the convention. The major general was stunned. There was very little chance that a group of veterans had been able to gather such vast amounts of funds. So clearly they had some sort of backing behind them. Who, wait, who did the bank statements belong to? I guess to this McGuire, this Gerald McGuire. And he was basically like, flashed him like his ATM receipt and was like. That's what it sounds like. Okay. I mean, not adding up. Not adding (laughs) up. (laughs) Um, Even worse was this, this is still the quote. Even worse was the speech that McGuire asked Butler to deliver. A speech which had little to do with veteran affairs and instead Mm -hmm. was more critical of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's recent move away from the gold standard. Which again, Smedley Butler was like an open supporter of FDR at this point. Yeah. So why... He's like, I don't give a fuck about your gold standard. Yeah, well, yeah, it it has nothing to do with veterans' rights. Like he's... Yeah, I can't... Like why they went after him. It's about a gold standard. Yeah. Oh my God. It just seems like, like the whole... I mean, as you get into the story, it's a real okay. hair, it's a real harebrained scheme. That makes um, sense. So Butler was like, um, "I'd like to talk to your superior at the American Legion," and McGuire was like, "Cool." So he put him in touch with someone named Robert Sterling Clark, who was an heir to the Singer Sewing Fortune. Sewing Ooh, Fortune. Yep. So now we're getting to the rich, the rich fuckers, the richy riches. Yeah. So Butler sat down with Robert Sterling Clark, who then told him, well, my real aim is that I want to preserve the gold standard. And he said that he was worth about $30 million, which by today's standards is about $600 million. And he said he was willing to spend half of that, about $15 million, or about $300 million by today's standards. The quote is, Clark had $30 million and was willing to spend half of it to save the other half. 
Um, or why don't you just sit at home and just hang out with your thirty million dollars or whatever the hell? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like what um, the? Fuck? Well, and I think that's essentially what Butler told him. Because <laughs> this, uh, all I says, uh, upon hearing this, Butler refused to speak at the convention. <laughs> okay, he was like, "I'm out. Thanks for the hot dog. Bye. Um, Bye." But this Gerald Maguire, who was like a henchman of this Robert Sterling Clark, started sending Smedley Butler postcards all over Europe, like kept just bugging him. And he was sending him postcards from places like Italy and Germany. So he was on this big excursion across Europe, which, as it turned out, was actually bankrolled by Robert Sterling Clark, the, okay. the sewing guy. So finally, Gerald McGuire comes back to the U.S., contacts Butler, says, I'd like to, can we have another meeting? And I guess Butler was like, hadn't had enough at this point. But he was like, sure, I guess. So he goes and meets up with, <laughs> he goes and meets up with McGuire. And at this point, McGuire is pretty upfront about the plans. He says, okay, here's the plan. I've got all this money from these, quote, captains of industry. And he says, and I've been traveling throughout Europe to see how veterans operated within foreign governments. And he said, yeah, Germany and Italy, like, let's not even talk about them. Like, but the veterans are doing real great in France. Well, the, he, he had actually gone and, and gotten in with a French right-wing nationalist league mm-hmm. that was filled with about 150,000 uh, World War I veterans. They're called, I'm not going to get this pronunciation right, but it's Croix de Fieu, I think. Okay. And so he tells Butler, he says, well, this just convinced me that really the only way to save the United States from FDR is we need to turn the country over to the veterans. So what I want to do, here's the plan. We're going to create a cabal of veterans and we're going to let FDR stay in, in, in the presidency, but he's just going to be a figurehead. We're going to put all of the power really in this cabal of veterans. Okay. And Butler was like, okay, what do you want me for? He's like, well, we want you to lead the cabal. So I can get you an army of 50 or 500,000 men and the backing of all these rich business interests from this, what was it? I need to find it again. Uh, American Liberty League, you know, the Richie mm-hmm. Riches. They're all behind this. And what we want you to do is get all these men and lead a peaceful march on Washington to then go to FDR and talk to him and convince him to let you run the country. So we want you to do a peaceful march mm-hmm. in Washington to FDR to overthrow a democratically elected right. president. Right. But peacefully. Yep. And, and, <laughs> and basically this is why it's such a harebrained scheme because uh-huh. it's like, he's basically like, like, well, FDR, he's a richy rich too. So we can talk to him. We can talk him into this. Wow. Okay. Um, okay. And so major general, Marine Major General Smedley Butler was <laughs> <laughs> like, cool, cool, cool. Um, I'm going to call this reporter friend of mine and like, can you just tell him the story too? <laughs> and Gerald McGuire's like, that's a great idea. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> In my notes, I say, McGuire, dumb as a rock and clearly not understanding the meaning of treason, <laughs> blithely spells the whole plan out to this reporter, a guy named Paul Comley French from the Philadelphia Record who is a friend of Smedley Butler's. And basically what he tells French is like, well, I spent all this time in Europe and what I've discovered is that really what we need is a fascist cabal to rule this country. And we've decided that Marine Major General Smedley Butler is the ideal leader of this cabal because he's so popular and he can organize a million men overnight. 
So did he leave out the fascist cabal beforehand? And it was just like, it was like veterans cabal. I think and so. then, and then in the interview, he was like, yeah, it just seems like every time fascist. Yeah. He's just like <laughs> oh, getting man. more and more comfortable. <laughs> tell, tell him this to a reporter, tell him this to Smedley Butler, who I think is just like, Hmm. Yeah. Sounds interesting. Tell me go more. On. Yeah, go please on. Go on. It's like, okay, cool. Anyway, I'm going to go to Congress. <laughs> this is Smedley <laughs> Butler. And I'm going to tell them everything you just told me. So the reason why he wanted this reporter, this Paul Comley French to hear is that he wanted corroboration because he knew that no, it's like, this, this shit's too fucking crazy. Yeah. And he's like, no one's going to believe this. So there was a, a committee. It was an already existing committee being run by two congressmen, uh, someone named John W. McCormick. And then, <laughs> another congressman who i just laugh every time i see his name it's samuel dickstein and just and i always i always want to read it as dickstein but we'll leave that aside <laughs> poor guy All poor right. guy so they were they had a committee that i think became essentially the huac committee that you know was so associated with mccarthyism ah, okay. at the time it was called the special committee on un-american activities and smedley butler goes to them and is like Hey guys, I've got a story for you. You might want to hear this. So he tells them the story. And at first they're like, what? Like, we don't, we don't buy this. This is bullshit. And Smedley Butler's like, no, I got names of all this, all the big financial backers and everything. You really should subpoena them. And these congressmen were like, no, we're not going to do that. He's like, okay, well, why don't you listen to my friend, Paul Comley French, who was there for the meeting. So like, okay. So Paul Comley French goes and testifies and he corroborates the story. They're like, okay, there may be something to this. Let's let's talk to this Gerald McGuire. And I was not able to find specifically what McGuire said, but what it was described, his testimony was described as evasive and erratic. So they were like, okay, well, this guy's clearly up to something. Yeah. And so they ended up diving in, doing a full investigation. And what they ultimately came out to is they were like, yeah, this, this was happening. Now, what, what is not known is, is this mostly McGuire and his harebrained scheme or how real this cabal of Richie Riches were backing. This, so, fascist, this fascist veteran Richie Rich cabal. Right. Well, because it was going to be a, veter- like a, a veteran's cabal ruling yeah. the government with FDR as a figurehead, but with the like, rich bankers truly as the puppet masters by the way the rich bankers being among the people who were like yelling about the jews being the puppet masters so right. you know what's good for the goose is you know not good for the gambler, it is I guess. It, it it is shocking to me how much projection is used as a tool yeah in life right <laughs> yeah no i mean clearly they were like we're we're really afraid of this this secretive nefarious jewish cabal of bankers so we're going to be a non-jewish cabal of bankers right (laughs) (laughs) which is obviously much less terrifying yeah because you know jews yeah so in it was called the mccormick dickstein um (laughs) committee and their final report they they basically said that they believed all of butler's claims to be factual but they also made clear that, that the plot had been far from anywhere close to being enacted mm-hmm. and like i said it was never really clear how deeply involved all the alleged conspirators were so this is from that final committee report they say quote in the last few weeks of the committee's official life it received evidence showing that certain persons had made an attempt to establish a fascist organization in this country no evidence was presented in this committee had 
none to show a connection between this effort and any fascist activity of any European country. There is no question that these attempts were discussed, were planned, and might have been placed in execution when and if the financial backers deemed it expedient. This committee received evidence from Major General Smedley D. Butler, retired, Mm-hmm. twice decorated by the Congress of the United States. He testified before the committee as to the conversations with one Gerald C. McGuire, in which the latter is alleged to have suggested the formation of a fascist army under the leadership of General Butler. McGuire denied these allegations under oath, but your committee was able to verify all the pertinent statements made by General Butler, with the exception of the direct statement suggesting the creation of the organization. This, however, was corroborated in the correspondence of McGuire with his principal, Robert Sterling Clark, of New York City, while McGuire was abroad studying the various forms of veterans organizations of fascist character. So that's from the final committee report. Mm -hmm. So this became known as the business plot or the Wall Street push. push. Wow. So one point, like, it's a silly plot. It's real fucking stupid. Mm-hmm. But this author, Sally Denton, on this All Things Considered podcast episode I listened to, mm-hmm. she's the one who wrote the book about this called The Plots Against the President. She makes the point that, like, if Smedley Butler was a different type of person, this could have advanced a lot further. They just went after the wrong guy. Yeah. It's... They just happened to go after a guy who, A, was a vocal supporter of FDR, also was, like, a genuine patriot who was right. not interested in overthrowing the United States government. Yeah. Um, that's a thought that keeps kind of rolling around in my head uh after the events of of last week right and that's why i say this this plot to me is i because i didn't know much i'd heard of it before i didn't know much about it until we decided to do this episode Mm -hmm. and as i was reading about it i was like this is both like the dumbest coup plot i've ever read the silliest coup plot i've ever read and also really fucking scary yeah because you know a different different person who did not decide to just go right to Congress, you know, this could have advanced much further than it did. Yeah, yeah. So among those who were implicated were this American Liberty League, also Prescott Bush, who is a businessman, banker, later senator, and of course the father of George H.W. Bush. Oh, Several members of the DuPont family. Okay. Alfred P. Sloan. S.B. Colgate, and then interestingly, former New York Governor Al Smith. Like, you always hear about the Al Smith dinner. Uh-huh. He was also supposedly part of this plot. And, of course, General Douglas MacArthur, who had been part of, who had led Hoover's charge to break up the Bonus Army camp. Okay. And who was going to be the backup if Butler declined. They were then going to go to MacArthur to lead this plot i think what they didn't expect is for butler to go just blow the whistle on them but i think that's oh okay (laughs) yeah it just it it, there's just no like there it's clear that there was no like okay if smedley right yeah marine major general smedley d butler (laughs) yeah if smedley's like yeah nah then how do we ensure that he doesn't that he doesn't talk. They were just like, it's cool. If he doesn't go, then we've got our backup. Yeah. And no, I, MacArthur. I, I think it and, was and not. Off we go. It was not very well thought through. And so there's definitely a theory that it wasn't all that serious of a plot because what, what people sort of think may be what was going on. It's not clear mm-hmm. that this Robert Sterling Clark 
and his little henchman, Gerald Maguire, were really the fulcrum of the whole plot. Mm-hmm. Maguire's job, he was he was working the Smedley Butler end while this Robert Sterling Clark was trying to get all these big titans of industry in involved. So what's not clear is that like they really did have all the backing of all these people. Mm-hmm. Um, it might have been these two guys kind of working it from both ends. So it's <sighs> and basically like no one took it all that seriously at the time. You know, most of the media when it went public, they kind of laughed it off. MacArthur himself called it the biggest laugh story of the year, quote unquote. The New York Times said this whole story sounds like a gigantic hoax. It does not merit serious discussion. And then New York Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia, he basically dismissed the whole thing. He said it was a cocktail putsch. It was just like a bunch of guys over cocktails sort of spitballing. Right. But he didn't think it was like a genuine plot, like working plot to overthrow the government. In 1958, a historian Arthur Schlesinger, though, said, uh, no doubt McGuire did have some wild scheme in mind, though the gap between contemplation and execution was considerable, and it can hardly be supposed that the Republic was in much danger. But then historian Robert F. Burke said, at their core, the accusations probably consisted of a mixture of actual attempts at influence peddling by a small core of financiers with ties to veterans organizations and the self-serving accusations of Butler against the enemies of his pacifist and populist causes. So it's like generally seems like the general, even though, you know, people were like not necessarily thinking Butler was lying. He had no reason to make this up. Mm-hmm. He was able to, they were able to corroborate a lot of this, mm-hmm. but the general sense was like, yeah, but this wasn't that big a deal. And I just go back to what I said, but if they had gone to MacArthur for, I mean, not, I don't know what MacArthur would have done. Right. But what I do know of MacArthur is I think he might have been, it's theoretically possible he might have been more on board with this. If they had gone to, you know, got to keep in mind, this is the same time period. Like I said, there was a lot of sympathy for fascist movements. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the big rivals for FDR was, you know, like Charles Lindbergh, the famous pilot. Oh, God. Famously pro-fascist. This is when the what's his name the king of england who had abdicated had become very pro-nazi oh right 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 you know so it's like what was his name i i, I can't remember yeah um, but it was the blonde king who married the divorce lady that's all i know about him. yeah and she what all right we'll tell that story some other time. yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's also important to point out that no one was ever prosecuted for this so it just he Smedley Butler testified, blew the lid off the whole thing, probably pretty much stopped the whole plot in its tracks, but yeah. then it kind of ended there. No, there was no further follow-up, no criminal prosecution. No one was put on trial for sedition or anything like that. So that is the story of the business plot. It's what a fucking wacky ass tale. Yeah. Like as I got into it, like, like I said, just all the way through I'm reading, I'm reading it and I'm just like, how the fuck did they think this was going to work? Like, even if they got Butler on board, they were just going to march on Washington and he was going to have a sit down with FDR and FDR was like, well, I didn't realize how much you guys really didn't like my policy. So yeah, well, let me just step aside. But I think, I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, the fucking proud boys on parlor being like, we're not going to vote in the Georgia elections. And they'll understand when there's a whole mess of people who didn't vote that something's wrong with the election. And it's like, we're sending a message. Yeah. But I'm like, 
hundreds of millions of eligible voters don't vote in every single fucking election. So why would your little voices be any different? Yeah, that's kind of how I feel about this. I mean, you know, Smedley Butler was very popular. Yeah. I think I think if he had led this march, if he had joined up and decided to do this, I don't think he they would have been able to overthrow the FDR, but I think they could have been a major major problem. And I think they might have like from what I understand about public sentiment at the time, they might have been able to build a fair amount of public support. Yeah. So if like the plot had been just like 2 degrees less hammering, it might have been <laughs> you do like i do not want a republic that hangs in the balance of plus or minus two harebrained yeah you know bullet points just depending on you know smedley butler to do the right thing oh my god i just really like drinking game for this show is just how many times did scotty say the name smedley (laughs) (laughs) Um, oh wow so yeah so that is the business plot Wow. 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 Yeah. Coups in this country do in fact exist. Mm -hmm. They've been, they've happened. They've been attempted. Um, Interesting. When I was doing some of the research on this, when I first, like when I was ruminating on the idea of the topic for this episode and I started to look into it, I was like, how many coups have happened in the United States? And the ones that are sort of like technically considered uh, coups, a good amount of them happened in Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of makes sense. Yeah, it is. I mean, I am certain that Hawaiians are like, uh, yeah, we know. Uh, (laughs) But again, I don't know how much of like mainland USA really understands how we got Hawaii. Yeah, that we should do that as an episode because that's conquered a fucking kingdom and then eventually we're like, okay, you can be a state. Yeah, um, and it's a pretty, it's a pretty gnarly story uh you know of once again colonization of an indigenous people and and yeah well and and not only do coups happen in this country the other story i considered doing um but it didn't quite fit because it's not a coup but uh not only do coups happen but dictatorships have happened in this country and because i wanted to do the story of the assassination of huey long and I might have to do that at some point because he essentially was an American dictator. He was governor of Louisiana, but essentially oh. seized dictatorial powers until he was assassinated. When did this happen? This was around this time. In fact, Huey Long had been an early supporter of FDR and then turned against FDR because he thought FDR wasn't going far enough. Ooh. He was a big uh, left-wing populist. Interesting. The book and movie All the King's Men is sort of a... okay fictionalized version of the Huey P. Long story. I'm going to have to do that at some point because that's a really interesting story. And Huey Long was just kind of like when I did the Dutch Schultz story. It's just like, these are just crazy characters. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. So there you have it. That's our coup spectacular. Our Our spectacular. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully we don't need to do another one of these about coups. We'll see what happens over the next 11 days. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Right. Hopefully, hopefully, you know, I'm not even, gonna, I'm not even going to verbalize yeah. that. Okay. Just not put it out in the universe. No, let's not put it out <laughs> into the universe. I'm going to go eat a lemon bar. Yeah. Cause I made some right before <laughs> Scotty gonna, texted me at around five and was like, I'm just going to grab something to eat. And then we rec- we can record. And I was like, I'm in the middle of making lemon bars. So <laughs> we're going to have to hit pause on that. Yeah. 
Um, well, I'm going to go finish my uh, mac and cheese. And, okay. <laughs> but in the meantime, uh, you've been listening to The Weirdest Thing. Oh, and we forgot to mention this the last uh, couple shows. <laughs> this uh, is so funny because I keep thinking about it. Like, as soon as we hang up, I'm like, why the fuck have we stopped saying the thing? Yeah. You know, be sure to uh, subscribe to us on all your podcast platforms. Mm-hmm. Rate and review. Leave a comment. And, of course, you can. Now, full disclosure, I have not checked our email in a while because I suck Scott. at email. Uh, but you can email us in theory at weirdestthingpod at gmail.com you can also Uh, i will check it tonight okay you You can also dm us on instagram uh that's probably a better way to get a hand a hang a hold mm, a hold of us Mm -hmm. uh we're also on facebook twitter so we're on twitter now yep so follow us do all those things and uh stay safe wear a mask (sighs) we'll uh talk to you next week Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.